Welcome back to another exciting episode of Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and let's get started. Alright, jumping right into the stories, um, I want to explore today near-death experiences, or NDEs. I was talking to a friend on my other podcast, The Not Normal Podcast, and he was talking about some NDEs that he had, which made for a pretty fascinating episode. So today, I want to jump into what are near-death experiences, and what are people reporting? Don't we all want to know what's on the other side? And why are people's stories so similar? So today, let's jump into it. All right. Wikipedia, a near-death experience. A near-death experience is a profound personal experience associated with death or impending death, with which researchers claim share similar characteristics. When positive, such experiences may encompass a variety of sensations, including detachment from the body, feelings of levitation, total serenity, security, warmth. The experience is absolute disillusion and the presence of a light. When negative, though, such experiences may include sensations of anguish and distress. Explanations for NDEs vary from scientific to religious. Neuroscience research hypothesizes that an NDE is a subjective phenomenon resulting from disturbed bodily multisensory integration that occurs during life-threatening events. Some transcendental and religious beliefs about an afterlife include descriptions similar to NDEs. In the U.S., an estimated 9 million people have reported an NDE. According to a 2011 study in the New York Academy of Sciences, most of these near-death experiences result from serious injury that affects the body or the brain. All right. Researchers have identified the common elements that define near-death experiences. Bruce Grayson argues that the general features of the experience include impressions of being outside one's physical body visions of deceased relatives and religious figures, and transcendence of egotic and spatiotemporal boundaries. Many common elements have been reported, although the person's interpretation of these events often corresponds with the cultural, philosophical, or religious beliefs of the person experiencing it. For example, in the U.S., where 46% of the population believes in guardian angels, they will often be identified as angels or deceased loved ones, while Hindus will often identify them as messengers of the god of death. Common traits that have been reported with NDEs are as follows. A sense of awareness of being dead. A sense of peace, well-being, and painlessness. Positive emotions a sense of removal from the world, an out-of-body experience, a perception of one's body from the outside position, sometimes observing medical professionals performing resuscitation efforts, a tunnel experience or entering a darkness, a sense of moving up or through a passageway or staircase, a rapid movement 
toward or sudden immersion in a powerful light or a being of light which communicates telepathically with the person. An intense feeling of unconditional love and acceptance. Encountering beings of light, beings dressed in white or similar. Also the possibility of being reunited with deceased loved ones. Experiencing euphoric environments. Receiving a life review, commonly referred to as seeing one's life flash before one's eyes. Approaching a border or a decision by oneself or others to return to one's body, often accompanied by a reluctance to return. Suddenly finding oneself back inside one's body, connected to the cultural beliefs held by the individual, which seem to dictate some of the phenomena experienced in NDE, more so affects the later interpretation thereof. Meeting the dead and hallucinating ghosts in the afterlife environment. It is also important not to confuse an out-of-body experience with a near-death experience. An out-of-body is part of a near-death, but most importantly can happen in other instances than when a person is about to die, such as fainting, deep sleep, and alcohol or drug abuse where there are many cases of people claiming to have lived through an out-of-body experience, seeing the world outside their physical body. All right, very cool. So we hop over to Discover Magazine, where they have an article written by Alex Orlando called Can Science Explain Near-Death Experiences? At the end of Plato's Republic, the philosopher Socrates shares the myth of Ur, a warrior who was killed in battle. Twelve days later, the man comes back to life to tell of the other world he had seen. His soul, he says, left his body to arrive in a mysterious place, where others were judged for their deeds and luminous beings descended from above. While Ur's experience sounds like the stuff of legends, strikingly similar accounts have been reported by real people, stretching across cultures and entire eras in human history. From ancient Greece to the present day, people who survived brushes with death often recount a sense of shedding the physical body and entering another realm or dimension. Some describe intense feelings of peace, passing through a dark tunnel towards a bright light, and re-experiencing life events in rich, panoramic detail. Scientists and doctors categorize these events as a near-death experience, or NDE. While there is no widely accepted definition of NDEs, the term typically refers to the mystical, profound experience that people report when they are close to death. They're most common in patients who survive severe head trauma or cardiac arrest, in other words, conditions in which you would die and stay dead unless somebody instituted emergency medical procedures to help you, says Bruce Grayson, a psychiatrist at the University of Virginia who has studied NDEs for nearly 50 years. Such events happen more often than you might think. In the U.S., an estimated 9 million people have reported an NDE. According to a 2011 study, by the New York Academy of Sciences. These individuals, or NDEers, are often deeply changed afterwards. Some find they have a great gusto, a greater gusto for life, 
more compassion for others, and a diminished fear of death. Others struggled to readjust to everyday routines, baffling loved ones with their new beliefs or divorcing their spouses. Even blissful or euphoric NDEs can leave survivors feeling angry or dismayed to be alive again. In the past 40 years, more and more scientists have probed the phenomenon. Yet despite almost half a century of investigation, researchers still don't agree on what's happening during NDEs or whether they can be explained at all. Some attribute them to hallucinatory flights of imagination, the last grasps of a dying brain, but others exploring what NDEs may unlock about our understanding of human consciousness and the possibility that it continues even after our bodies and brain power down. Rethinking death. What happens to us after we die? The question has lingered over human activity for at least 34,000 years. Given records of ancient peoples in Sungir, Russia, burying their dead with ivory beads and their ornamental accessories would suggest some concept of life beyond the grave. Similarly, reports of NDEs have been referred by human wrestling with the possibility of an afterlife since antiquity. They've cropped up in Egyptian Book of the Dead, the Bardo Thadal, or the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and the Bible even the works of Ernest Hemingway. It wasn't until the 18th century that a physician first recorded his own observation and scientific ana analysis of the phenomenon. Around 1740, the first medical report of an NDE came from a military doctor from northern France, Pierre-Jean du Machot, describes a patient who lost consciousness after having too much blood drawn to treat a fever. The patient later reported that he saw such a pure and extreme light that he thought he was in heaven and affirmed that never of all his life had he had a nicer moment. Du Monchot speculated that too much blood flow to the brain had caused these strong, serene feelings compared to the similar reports from people who had survived drowning, hypothermia, and hanging. More than 200 years would pass before research into the NDEs really took off. In his 1975 book, Life After Life, psychiatrist Raymond Moody coined the term near-death experiences to describe these episodes. The label stuck, as did Moody's description of the common features reported by survivors, including immense feelings of peace and love, meeting dead loved ones, and reaching a barrier or point of no return. The research that, piled, that has piled up since Moody brought NDEs into the spotlight has largely affirmed the original description. For much of human history, death has, was seen as a simple and permanent affair. When people died, whether they had a car accident or were at war or had an infection, the final thing that would occur is that their heart would stop, says Sam Parna, director of critical care and resuscitation research at New York University. Langone Health Medical Center, that was irreversible. Since the heart is intimately intertwined with the functioning of the lungs and brainstem, any process that leads one organ to stop working will inevitably lead to the termination of the other two. In short, if any of those three vital organs ceases functioning, 
death soon follows. Even today, doctors still often declare death at the precise point in time when a patient's heartbeat has come to a halt. Built in 19... But in 1960, just 15 years before Moody would popularize the term NDE, physicians combined mouth-to-mouth breathing with chest compressions to create cardiopulmonary resuscitation, CPR, as we call it today. CPR has made death far less black and white. The arrival of CPR, as well as other emergence of intensive care medicine, enabled people who had passed the threshold of biological death to come back, be kept alive through life support machines like ventilators. Parnia thinks that someday scientists might be able to push the threshold of death even further. Actually, the cells inside your body don't die when you die, he says. A 2019 discovery showed how brain activity could be restored in pigs more than 10 hours after the animals were killed. A study that Parnia says was worthy of a Nobel Prize. Even when all signs of life have vanished, the brain cells have been deprived of oxygen. Those underlying cells don't die for many hours, possibly even days. In other words, says Parnia, when we call the irreversibility of death, it's simply a lack of medical means to bring someone back to life. Advances in medical resuscitation have helped fuel NDE studies, since researchers can now analyze data from large cohorts of cardiac arrest survivors. For example, a 2001 study of 344 patients who were successfully resuscitated in Dutch hospitals, 18% reported an NDE. More recent studies have even attempted to illuminate what happens to our consciousness when we die a mystery that kept humans awake at night for thousands of years. Floating Above Before John was three years old, his heart stopped. His grandmother recalled the chaos that followed. People rushing to help, chest compressions. John remained lifeless and blue. He was put in an ambulance and raced off to the hospital. After John had been revived and discharged from the hospital, One day, while playing, he said, Grandma, when I died, I saw a lady. John's grandmother asked her daughter, John's mom, whether anybody had said anything to him about his cardiac arrest. No, absolutely not, she answered. But over the next several months, John still continued to talk about what he'd experienced. When I was in the doctor's car, the belt came undone, and I was looking down from above, he said. Some features of NDEs, like those in John's case, report details in a 2014 paper written by Parnia, seem to defy explanation. Parnia, who also led a four-year study of more than 100 cardiac arrest survivors, notes that some NDEs see scenes of their lives flash before their eyes, a phenomenon researchers call the life review. He also says that most tend to focus on their intentions towards other people. You end up judging yourself based on your worth as a human being, Parnia says. The part that's particularly inexplicable is that they end up experiencing this through the prism of other person's perspective. Beyond that, many of these events depict that you'd normally be unable to remember, like moments from early childhood.
Another seemingly inexplicable NDE hallmark is the out-of-body experience. Many people report that their consciousness seems to float above their body, and in rare cases, observe and remember what's happening around them with startling accuracy. In Grayson's 2021 book, After, the psychiatrist describes how Holly, a patient of his who overdosed, was able to recall precise details of his conversation with her roommate in another room for that matter, while she was unconscious. Holly even noted the striped tie that Grayson had dribbled spaghetti sauce on. I was totally flustered by it, Grayson says. The only way it could have been happened was if she had left her body, and that made no sense to me at all. Parnia's study of cardiac arrest survivors across 15 hospitals, dubbed AWARE, is published in the journal Resuscitation in 2014 and was part, partially an attempt to figure out a way to test the vi validity of such reports. Basically, were patients really witnessing actual events that occurred after they had been declared dead? To the study sur survivor's claims, participating hospitals put dozens of shelves in their emergency departments and ICUs. Each had a different image facing up, including a picture of religious symbols, animals, and newspaper headlines, only visible to someone peering down from the ceiling. In theory, patients might see the image if their consciousness had somehow decoupled from their body in the emergency room. I love that they tried something like this. Among the 101 survivors who were interviewed multiple times, nearly half reported they had no awareness or memories at all while they were unconscious. 46% reported detailed memories, like seeing animals and plants or feeling intense fear, not typically associated with NDEs. And 9% of them had NDEs, roughly the same rate that's been reported by cardiac arrest survivors in other studies. The study authors say that one patient, a 57-year-old man, accurately described sights and sounds during his own resuscitation from a vantage point at the top corner of the room. Since this man was in the room without the shelf present, however, he wasn't able to describe the pictures they held. While none of the patients studied were able to name the images on the shelf, only about 22% of the cardiac events occurred in these modified rooms. Still, the study authors suggest that these vivid image experiences, both NDEs and other memories, took place clinically undetectable consciousness, citing other examples, such as people who have awareness of events while in a vegetative state. For the first time ever, we were able to show that consciousness does occur when the heart stops and the brain shuts down, says Parnia, who adds that this research begs the question, how can someone make memories and have lucid, well-structured thought processes when their brain is either severely damaged or even not working at all? A skeptical lens. There's no denying the transformative power of NDEs. These deeply mystical experiences can prompt major psychological and spiritual changes, like enhanced empathy and less concern for wealth and social status. Beyond that, Simply knowing about them can trigger bigger life changes. Grayson points to research on students that have had NDEs even a year after learning about them. They often became more caring and altruistic. 
the idea of a near-death experience touches someone that something that we all know deep in our being he says we are not here alone we are part of something greater than ourselves yet not all ndes are positive while euphoric ndes get the most press other experiences can be deeply disturbing dominated by feelings of terror isolation and agony and while ndes often precipitate personal growth they can also trigger symptoms of ptsd and cause major disruptions in people's lives i've seen lots of careers end says grayson in addition to that many people were so enraptured by their nde that they were depressed or angry to be back alive again Regardless of their impact, some scientists and scholars still view NDEs through the lens of psychology, biology, and neuroscience. John Martin Fisher, a philosopher at the University of California, Riverside, and co-author of Near-Death Experiences, says that one explanation for the universal similarities in the NDE reports is often ignored. It's not that we're in contact with otherworldly realm. He says, we're all similar. Humans have similar developmental histories, psychologies, and similar brains. Beyond that, all humans have a, to come to terms with the looming threat of death. When we're in a situation that seems like it might lead to our death, Fisher continues, we react in similar ways. The biochemistry and neurophysiology interacts with our psychology in complex ways to produce similar reactions. Kevin Nelson, a neurologist at the University of Kentucky Medical Center, argues that NDEs can be slotted neatly into the neuroscientific framework. Like Fisher, he says there are complex phenomena, but also notes that many of the well-known features of NDEs can also be triggered by situations where someone's life isn't in danger. The context of the experience, feeling threatened, may be as important as the actual medical threat, says Nelson who wrote, also wrote The Spiritual Doorway in the Brain. He points out that the experience of fainting can generate similar effects. Done in the safe confines of a laboratory, it will induce identical elements to a near-death experience. A study published in The Lancet, or the Lancet in 1994 found that the syncope or fainting often prompted NDE staples like feelings of peace and entering another world and being surrounded by light. That includes out-of-body experiences too. Though often a feature of NDEs, they often occur in general population. One survey of 13,000 people found that almost 6% had an out-of-body experience. They've been reported by people with epilepsy and sleep paralysis. They can even be triggered in the lab by zapping the brain's temporoparental cortex, which regulates how the body perceives itself, with a small electric charge. Most of the time, says Nelson, they occur during the transition between wakefulness and rapid eye movement, stages of sleep.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, let's jump into another direction at Forever Family Foundation. I believe this will be more of the pseudoscience surrounding near-death experiences, but I'm not sure. So let's jump into it. Afterlife science, a broad term to describe the study of phenomena associated with the survival of consciousness after death. Afterlife science usually includes near-death experiences, after-death communications, mediumship, end-of-life experiences, electronic voice phenomena, reincarnation, and related phenomena that show the mind connect independently of the brain. Belief in life after death is certainly not a modern-day concept. Many ancient cultures incorporated such knowledge into daily activities and long-term planning. Traditional scientific thinking most often discounted the possibility that consciousness could survive physical death, instead asserting that since consciousness was a byproduct of the brain, when the physical brain ceased to exist, so did consciousness. In other words, our thoughts, memories, and soul were forever extinguished. There are those who remain steadfast in their conviction that there is an afterlife solely due to their religious teachings. These beliefs are usually not evidence-based, but are the results of blind faith. Similarly, some people who are simply spiritual and do not subscribe to any organized religion simply possess an inner knowledge of life beyond physical death. Forever Family Foundation is interested in the scientific evidence that supports the premise that we are much more than our physical bodies and do indeed survive physical death. Although such evidence remains unknown to the majority, it is compelling and plentiful. Such evidences can be found through many disciplines of research, including near-death experiences, deathbed visions, mediumship, and many more. In addition, there are other types of phenomena that show that the mind can act independently of the brain, thus laying the groundwork for survival. Such areas of study include telepathy, remote viewing, distant healing, intention, and other side phenomena. For the sake of this episode, I will read the near-death experience part. A near-death experience refers to the phenomenon of those who are clinically dead and subsequently revived reporting personal experiences suggesting an afterlife. Although every experience is different, Some common themes include detachment and looking down at one's body, a presence of light, moving through a tunnel, encounters with deceased people, feelings of warmth, peace, and very clear thinking, life reviews, unlimited knowledge, etc. Many are told by various entities to return to the physical world, as is not their time to transition. Most experiencers return being absolutely convinced that they visited another realm and therefore lose all fear of death. There are many cases of veridical 
NDEs, where experiencers report seeing things go on at other locations, such as another room or building. They return with information that cannot be verified by researchers, and such information that they could not have known by ordinary means. Recent development in cardiac resuscitation techniques have enabled reports of such experiences to increase. There are also near-death experience reports from people who are not close to death, but faced imminent danger. There are many well-credentialed researchers on near-death experiences who have amassed a wealth of data. The list is quite extensive, but the list includes Bruce Grayson, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, Kenneth Ring, Raymond Moody, Pim Van Lommel, Peter Fenwick, uh, Atwater, and Michael Sabam. Although well-known to those who spend time with and around the dying, many are unfamiliar with the fact that those who are close to death often see and have conversations with loved ones who are deceased. This usually occurs anywhere from a few weeks before to the day of physical death. Those who appear to be straddling the two worlds have clear and lucid conversations with entities that are most often unseen to the others in the room. In fact, the dying usually cannot understand why others cannot see the same loved ones. Medical doctors and other mental health professionals unfamiliar with the phenomenon most often attribute such appearances to hallucinations and dismiss them. Other professionals who know that the visions are real explain that the visitors are most often close relatives, the most common of which are mothers. They also know that these experiences are not hallucinatory in any way, but lucid communication not induced by medication. The, the implication of such evidence is that we are all assisted by others as we prepare for the transition. It is quite possible that we are all a deathbed vision before dying or that we all have one. Even though those that are physically or mentally incapacitated cannot express this or to others in the physical. The first formal scientific research on the study started in the 1920s by Sir William Barrett, a professor of physics. He published a book called Deathbed Visions and noted several consistencies in the cases. He concluded that it didn't make a difference if the patient believed in an afterlife. Most of the patients studied were receiving no medications, and the patient stated that the visitors were there to take them away. Dr. Carlos Osis did a study in the 1960s that confirmed Barrett's findings. In the 1970s, Dr. Osis was joined by Dr. Erlender Haraldison in studies that resulted in the publishing of at the hour of death, which they conclude that out of the conscious before death, one-half to one-thirds report such visions. We go over to NPR, where there's an article about near-death experiences research. It begins, Randy Scheifer remembers being woken up by his mother's screams at four in the morning. He was 16 years old at the time. It was 1969, and his family was staying at a hotel while on vacation in New Jersey. 
He ran towards the screams and found his father having a heart attack. He had some CPR training, so he began some smooth or some mouth-to-mouth resuscitations, but it wasn't working. He ran out into the hallway, pounding on doors, trying to get someone to come out and help. But nobody did, Schaefer says. Schaefer's father died that night. He was devastated. What's worse is that every time he thought about his father, he would be consumed with feelings of guilt and fear. He'd think about him on that hotel floor, and then inevitably he'd think about his own eventual death. I would go into panic attacks, Schaefer said. I'd get this really tight feeling in my chest, and the only way I could control it is just to settle myself down and say, okay, get it out of your head, get it out of your head. For Schaefer, death was not a black, or death was a black wall, a question mark. That is, until he faced it himself. He had what's known as a near-death experience, which have been documented around the world and can lead people to change their way they live their lives. Facing death. In March 2020, Schaefer had what's felt like a very persistent flu. His doctor had told him he just needed to rest, but as the days went on, his symptoms got worse. He tested for COVID-19 and was positive. Things deteriorated fast for Schaefer. He was rushed to a nearby hospital, where he was put onto um, into a medically induced coma and placed on heart-lung machines. He was unconscious for nearly a month, but he came through after a convalescent plasma treatment that his daughter, Lisa Schaefer, pushed for. He received the blood transfusion on Friday, and by Sunday, the doctors were able to turn off the heart-lung machines that had been keeping him alive. My lungs had completely cleared by that Tuesday. My kidneys started to function fully again, and so did my liver, Schaefer says. After the medication wore off and Schaeffler was steadily improving, his daughter was permitted to keep him company in his hospital room. Only after I was allowed at his bedside did he start communicating with me about what he'd experienced. An unexpected experience. Near-death experiences can occur when someone faces a life-threatening situation, such as cardiac arrest or under deep anesthesia. Some people have reported the feeling of leaving their body and observing their surroundings. For Schaefer, his journey started with what looked like an airplane fuselage. Schaefer says there was a moment while he was in a coma where he remembers his consciousness awakening. He was traveling through a kind of tunnel with light streaming through like windows in an airplane. Beautiful, warm, loving light, Schaefer says. The tunnel brought him to a large room with arched windows and stained glass. It also permeated with the same warm, loving light. Then Schaefer says a gentleman approached him and said he didn't belong there, that he had to leave. He walked out through giant oak doors into an even more serene scene. I remember going through the doors and it took me out into a golden city and it was absolutely stunning, says Schaefer. When he first described the city to his daughter Lisa, he said it was like Paris, but more beautiful and more pristine. He says the grass in the parks was deeper green than anything on earth. 
and I've been to the Highlands of Scotland, Schaefer, Schaefer says. But this awestruck stroll took a turn when Schaefer realized he didn't know where he was or how to get back. He felt lost. I remember sitting down and I started to panic and I started to cry. That feeling of warmth left him. He says he felt cold and scared. Suddenly, I looked over my shoulder and saw this big white staircase that rose up into the sky as far as he could see. He began climbing the staircase, crawling on his hands and knees. Then he says someone called him by name, grabbed him by the shirt, and whisked him away. I remember it going black, back to my dark, sedated world. His daughter listened to Schaefer's story intently, but let him know that he hadn't traveled to any cities lately. In fact, he'd been in a coma in the hospital room for nearly a month, but he insisted the experience was real. When she offered up that it was probably a dream or hallucination from heavy medications, that didn't sit right with Schaefer. My dreams were foggy, and my hallucinations were just stupid. I saw nine dancing panda bears on the ceiling, Schaefer says, but this was so real. I was there. I was involved with my environment, and I felt so much peace and love and acceptance, more than I have ever felt before. A noticeable shift. Schaefer's daughter Lisa started noticing differences in her dad almost immediately after he got home, like when he started opening up about the night he watched his father die from a heart attack. My mom and I sat at the kitchen island, and he just spoke, she says. He was telling us about it. As he was talking about that night in New Jersey, he asked his daughter to get an eyeglasses case from the closet. She took the glasses out and stared at them. He looked like a little stunned as he told her about the last person to take them out of the case was his father. My dad was 16 when he died. He's almost 70. Or, my dad was 16 when his father died. He's almost 70 now. That tells you how long those cases have been just sitting there in their case. That wasn't like Schaefer. He wasn't one to divulge emotional details, especially when it involved death of loved ones. Pre-COVID dad never talked about death. He didn't talk about dying. We didn't talk about God. We didn't talk about the afterlife, Lisa Schaefer says. We didn't talk about any of that. It was moments like this that caused her to think differently about what her dad had shared in the hospital. She began seeing his near-death experience as what it was for him, something real. What we know about near-death experiences. Experiences like Schaefer's aren't uncommon. Researchers have found that between 10 and 20% of people who have documented cardiac arrest, that is, when their heart stops, will report a near-death experience, says Dr. Bruce Grayson, a professor emeritus of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences at University of Virginia. Grayson has been studying first-hand accounts like Schaefer's for about 50 years, looking for patterns. The best definition we have is that it's a profound experience that many people have that includes enhanced thought processes. Grayson explains, your thoughts are faster and clearer than usual. You have a sense of being in a timeless state. You often have a review of your entire lives. 
It includes strong emotions like sense of overwhelming peace and well-being, and a sense of oneness with everything, an experience of unconditional love, a sense of being outside of the physical body. Most surprising to Grayson is that people can see things in their near-death experiences that will later be corroborated as accurate, like certain tools used during open-heart surgery or conversations that happened when they were unconscious or pronounced dead. The most significant to Grayson is what comes after a near-death experience. I've got story after story of people who couldn't go back to the same profession, people who were, say, career police officers, couldn't shoot after near-death experience, of people who were in competitive businesses who no longer felt it was meaningful to get ahead at someone else's expense. Grayson says these people often change their careers or make other dramatic lifestyle changes. That was Schaefer's experience. Along with a willingness to discuss death freely, he was open to talking about all sorts of existential questions. He also started to dig deeper into his family's Christian faith and began praying regularly. As a result, he says he's become a better version of himself. I'm much more open, much more welcoming, and much more understanding than I was before. I think much more loving as a husband and father as I was before, Schaefer says. Alright, hopping into some more. We go to the Atlantic. They have an article called The Science of Near-Death Experiences by Gideon Litchfield. Near-death experiences have gotten a lot of attention lately. The 2014 movie, Heaven is for Real, about a young boy who has told his parents he had visited heaven while he was having emergency surgery. It grossed a respectable $91 million in the U.S. The book it was based on, published in 2010, has sold some 10 million copies and spent 206 weeks on the New York bestsellers list. Two recent books by doctors... Proof of Heaven by Eben Alexander, who writes about near-death experience, has had, while in a week-long coma brought on by meningitis, and To Heaven and Back by Mary C. Neal, who had her NDE while submerged in a river after a kayaking accident, have spent 94 to and 36 weeks, respectively, on the list. These stories are similar to those told in dozens if not hundreds of books and in thousands of interviews about NDEers or experiencers, as they call themselves, in the past few decades. Though details and descriptions vary across cultures, the overall tenor of the experience is remarkably similar. Western near-death experiences are most studied, Many of these stories relate to the sensation of floating up and viewing the scene around one's unconscious body, spending time in beautiful, otherworldly realms, meeting spiritual beings, some call them angels, and loving presence that some call God, experiencing long-lost relatives or friends, recalling scenes from one's own life, feelings of connectedness to all creation, as well as a sense of overwhelming, transcendent love and finally being called reluctantly away from the magical realm, 
back to one's own body. Many indie ear reports that their experience did not feel like a dream or a hallucination, but was, as they describe it, more real than real life. They are profoundly changed afterwards and tend to have trouble fitting back into everyday life. Some embark on radical career shifts or leave their spouses. Alright. Over time, the scientific literature that attempts to explain NDEs as a result of physical change in a stressed or dying brain has also commensurately grown. The causes posited include oxygen shortage, imperfect anesthesia, and the body's neurochemical response to trauma. Indie ears dismiss these explanations as inadequate. The medical conditions under which NDEs happen, they say, are too varied to explain a phenomenon that seems so widespread and consistent. Right. Recent books by Sam Parnia and Pimvin Lamel, both physicians, describe studies published in peer-reviewed journals that attempt to pin down what happens during NDEs under controlled experimental conditions. Right, we've already talked about some of their studies, so we will skip over it. All right. It was Alexander who really upped the scientific stakes. He studied his own medical charts and came to the conclusion that he was in such a deep coma during his NDE, his brain was so completely shut down, that the only way to explain what he felt and saw was that his soul had indeed detached from his body and gone on a trip to another world, and that angels, God, and the afterlife are all as real as can be. Alexander not only has not published his medical findings about himself in a peer-reviewed journal. And a 2013 investigative article in Esquire questioned several details of his account, among them the crucial claim that his experience took place while his brain was incapable of any activity. To the skeptics, his story and the recent recanting of the boy who came back from heaven are just further evidence that NDEs rank right up there with alien abductions, psychic powers, and poltergeists, as fodder for charlatans looking to gull the ignorant and suggestible. Yet even these skeptics rarely accuse experiencers of inventing their stories from the whole cloth. Though some of these stories may be fabrications, and more no doubt become embellished in the retelling, they're too numerous and well-documented to be dismissed altogether. It's also hard to ignore the accounts by respected physicians with professional reputations to protect. Even if the afterlife isn't real, the sensations of having been there certainly are. There is something about NDEs that make you scientifically intriguing. While you can't rely on alien abduction or spiritual visitations taking place, Just when you've got recording instruments handy, many NDEs happen when a person is surrounded by an arsenal of devices designed to measure every single thing about the body that human ingenuity has made us capable of measuring. The hero's journey is so pervasive in storytelling because it is so aspirational. It offers the possibility of escape and transformation.
What's more, as medical technology continues to improve, it's bringing people back from ever closer to the brink of death. A small handful of lucky people have been made fully and near fully recoveries after spending hours with no breath or pulse, buried in snow or submerged in very cold water. Surgeons sometimes create these conditions intentionally, chilling patients' bodies or stopping their hearts in order to perform complex, dangerous operations. Recently, they have been begun trying out such techniques on severely injured trauma victims, keeping them between life and death until their wounds can be repaired. All of this makes near-death experiences perhaps the only spiritual experience that we have a chance of investigating in a truly thorough scientific way. It makes them a vehicle for exploring the ancient human belief that we are more than meat. It makes them a lens through which to peer at workings of consciousness. One of the great mysteries of human existence, even for the most resolute materialist. Which is how I found myself last summer in Newport Beach, California, at the annual conference of the International Association for Near-Death Studies, which has been a formal organization since 1981. I wanted to know, what makes a person start believing that he has truly seen the other side? What does one's one person's other side look so similar to many other people's? And is there a way for science to get at what's really going on? An animated exploration narrated by the author. The conference had the joyous, clubby atmosphere of a reunion, and many of the people had clearly known each other for years. Attendings wore strips of ribbon in different colors bearing legends, such as speaker, panelist, volunteer, and for those who have had a near-death experience, experiencer. The program included panels and workshops on everyday, everything from what medical neuroscience can learn from NDEs to sacred geometry dance, creating a vortex to open to the divine, and past group past life regression. The open talk by Diane Corcoran, the associate's president, was clearly for newbies. The main ballroom, which seats about 300 people, was almost empty. She began by outlining the wide variety of circumstances in which people have NDEs. Heart attacks, near drowning, electrocution, terminal illness, combat fatigue, then moved on to the typical characteristics of the experiences. She referred to Bruce Grayson, one of the first doctors to study NDEs seriously, who developed a scale that rates the intensity of an experience on 16 separate counts, such as feelings of joy, encountering spiritual beings, and the sense of being separated from the body. The scale assigns a score of 0 to 2 for each count, allowing the maximum possible score of 32. A 7 or higher is classified as an NDE, and according to one study, the average score among people who report such an experience is about a 15. However, Corcoran emphasized the long-term effects of an NDE are as important an indicator of whether you've had one as the experience itself. Many people, she said, don't realize for years they've had an NDE and piece it together only after they notice the effects. 
These include heightened sensitivity to light, sound, and certain chemicals, becoming more caring and generous, sometimes to a fault, having trouble with timekeeping and finances, feeling unconditional love for everyone, which can be taxing on relatives and friends, and having a strange influence on electrical equipment. At one conference of indie years, Corcoran recounted the hotel's computing computer system went down. You put 400 experiencers in a hotel together, something's going to happen. The scattered audience chuckled approvingly. Corcoran herself wore two name badges. One said her name and trailed a multicolored strip of ribbons like an unrolled window blind reading 35 years, Legacy Society, ask me in here to serve. It started as a joke. She told me of adding ribbons at each conference, and it became a tradition. The other badges said the colonel. Her long career includes a series of senior nursing posts in Army Nurse Corps. She had a doctorate in nursing management. She first encountered NDEs when, as a junior nurse, she served at Long Bend, the Army base in Vietnam in 1968-1969. Nobody was talking about them, Corcoran said, when we met over breakfast. A young man told me about an NDE, and I had no idea what he was talking about, and I could see the emotion and intensity of it for him. Since then, she has been trying to get the medical profession to take NDEs more seriously. Death and dying is not something most physicians deal with very well to begin with, she noted dryly. So when you start talking about phenomena where you leave the body and see and hear things, you're way out of their ballpark. More recently, she had been trying with difficulty to find veterans of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars who were willing to talk about any NDEs they might have had. I was always adamant in the Army that there is a medical issue. I tell doctors they have to make up their own minds, but there are a lot of patients who have experienced this, and if you're going to take care of them, you have to have this information. Written accounts from near-death experiences, or things that sound like them, date back to at least the Middle Ages, and some researchers say to ancient times. The medical journal Resuscitation recently published a brief account of the oldest known medical descriptions of an NDE, written by an 18th century French military doctor. But the modern era of research into near-death experiences is generally said to have begun in 1975, That was the year Raymond Moody, a philosopher turned psychiatrist, published Life After Death, a book based on interviews with some 50 experiencers. Moody's book set off a a steady stream of memoirs, TV shows, and articles. Since then, a small community has emerged of psychiatrists, psychologists, cardiologists, and other specialists. They share Moody's belief that consciousness, the mind, the soul, call it what you will, may exist in some non-material form, independent but closely connected to the brain, 
and that NDEs may be able to provide evidence of it. The leading members of this group have distinguished careers at respectable universities and hospitals. They blurb one another's books and give talks on spirituality and the nature of consciousness. Right. Reports of veridical perception have a to totemic significance among indie years. One of the most celebrated is the story of Maria, a migrant worker who had an NDE during cardiac arrest at a hospital in Seattle in 1977. She later told her social worker that while doctors were resuscitating her, she found herself floating outside the hospital building and saw a tennis shoe on the third floor window ledge, which she described in some detail. The social worker went to the window Maria had indicated and not only found the shoe, but said the way it was placed meant there was no way Maria could have seen all the details she described from inside her hospital room. The social worker, Kimberly Clark Sharp, is now a bubbly 60-something with a shock of frizzy hair who acted as my informal press officer during the conference. She and her story are a institution at this conference. I heard several people refer to the case of Mar Maria Shue, or just the tennis shoe case. But while Maria's shoe certainly makes for a compelling story, it's thin on the evidential side. A few years later, after being treated, Maria disappeared, and no one was able to track her down for further confirm her story. A case with a lot more evidence is that of Pam Reynolds, a singer-songwriter. In 1991, Reynolds, then 35, underwent surgery to remove huge aneurysm at the base of her brain. Worried that the aneurysm might burst and kill her during the operation, her surgeon opted for the radical move of hypothermic cardiac arrest, chilling her body to 60 degrees Fahrenheit, stopping her heart, and draining the blood from her head. The cooling would prevent her cells from dying while deprived of oxygen. When the doctors restarted her heart and warmed her body back up, she would, in effect, be rebooted. Whether you saw a divine being or your brain was merely pumping out chemicals, the experience was so intense that it forces you to rethink your place on Earth. To make absolutely sure that Reynolds' brain was completely inactive during the operation, the medical team put small speakers into her ears that played rapid, continuous clicks at 100 decibels, a sound level described as equivalent to that produced by a lawnmower or a jackhammer. If any part of her mind was working, the insistent clicking would show as electrical symbols, signals in the brainstem, which the surgeons were monitoring on an electrophelogram, something like that. The machine confirmed that for a number of minutes, Reynolds was effectively dead in both brain and body. Yet after the surgery, she reported to have a powerful NDE including an out-of-body experience, and accurately recalled several details about what was going on in the operating room, such as the shape of the bone saw used on her skull, snatches of conversations between the medical staff, and the staff listening rather inappropriately, she remembered thinking, to Ca Hotel California. You can check out at any time you like, but you can never leave. 
For the near-death experience community, Reynolds is Exhibit A, but none of Reynolds' reported veridical perceptions happened while her EEG recorded a flatline. They all took place before or after when she was under anesthetic, but very much alive. Anesthesia awareness is generally estimated to affect roughly 1,000 patients. Therefore, the skeptical argument goes, Reynolds could have heard snatches of conversations. She might have deduced some things about the bone saw from the noise it made or the vibration of it against her skull. And she might have reconstructed some false memories out of details she noticed before or after the operation. In 2011, a year after Reynolds died of heart failure, the Journal of Near-Death Studies devoted an entire issue to debate over her case, in which a skeptic and two believers argued over such minutiae as the duration of the noise played by the speakers in her ears, the way the bone conducts sound, and esoteric theories on how exactly a non-physical mind might be able to perceive physical stimuli. Summing it up, Janice Holden, the journal's editor, concluded that the case, like Reynolds, provides imperfect data that pro probably can never result in a definitive evidence. All right, we go now to Natil.us. The Afterlife is in Our Heads by Kristen French. It was written last month, actually. One Sunday evening in September, nearly 30 years ago, Xavier Mello, then 23, was driving home from his job as a private math tutor in Barcelona, Spain. It was one of his two weekend jobs, and his car was stacked with study notes and practice tests for the upcoming business school entrance exam. Mello retraced the familiar route home at a leisurely pace, to savor a gentle breeze and the satisfaction of a weekend's work complete. As he pulled into an intersection, a Volkswagen Golf violently crashed into his car, destroying it. Melo himself suffered head, head trauma, lost consciousness, and fell into a coma. He woke in the hospital bed, screaming again and again, I have been with God. Melo's memory of the immediate aftermath of the craft is, crash is vivid and mysterious. It follows the familiar arc of a near-death experience. He recalls that he flew out of his body and hovered above it, then observed a nurse in an ambulance who held his hands and called out, we're losing him, we're losing him, as he watched his papers swirl and scatter in the street. Then he began to rise, the ambulance receding from him in the distance, until he came to a tunnel where the scenes of his life as a child began to play out. He felt an overwhelming sense of belonging, of kinship, with the trees, the wind, the water, and saw an indescribable light that drew him in, a light he began to believe was a being. It was like the magnetism of love, something that attracts the deepest part of you, he told me. I've never been more alive. I've never felt more lucid in my life. Regaining awareness and sense of his physical body, Melo said, was traumatic. As Melo relived his story for me over Zoom from his home in Barcelona, he repeatedly became so overwhelmed with emotion that he had to stop and regain his composure. 
The experience, he said, transformed him, but not until 25 years after his accident. In 2017, after years of the insurance industry, in the industry, and upon graduating from a business school program in management, he formed a foundation, ICLABI, to promote socially responsible business practices. This fall, the foundation will embark on a study of near-death experiences in cardiac arrest patients, including children, among Spanish-speaking people across Spain, Cuba, Mexico, Colombia, and Argentina. The research project aims to replicate an earlier study of 344 cardiac arrest survivors published in the British Medical Journal, The Lancet, in 2001 by Lamel, a cardiologist, author, and researcher in near-death studies in the Netherlands. For us, it's important to demonstrate that death is only for the material body, says Luhan Komas, vice president of Eklobi Foundation, who joined us on the Zoom call. The idea that near-death experiences, also known as NDEs, offer proof in, of an afterlife for the soul that has been remarkably persistent, despite an accumulation of scientific evidence to the contrary. Such claims have existed in the historical record since at least Plato's time. The earliest known account of near-death experiences appeared in the 5th century BC, but they weren't po widely popularized until the 1970s after Raymond Moody published his bestseller, Life After Death. Having an out-of-body experience is not proof that the soul or the mind can leave the body and go floating around, said Anil Seth, a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex, who studies consciousness and is the author of a recent book on the subject, Being You. Those who tout near-death experiences as some sort of more than biological, Seth added, are confusing the content of the experience with the claim about nature of the universe. There's a more, much more interesting explanation, which is that the location that we feel ourselves to be is something that is general, generated by the brain and can be changed when the brain is in a particular state. Right... One thing that is widely reported is a general loss of the fear of death. It's pretty cool. Goes on to more scientific stuff that we've already covered. While no single overarching explanation for NDEs has yet been established, neuroscientists have discovered a series of neurophysiological mechanisms that could together account for many aspects of the phenomenon. One hypothesis is that NDEs are produced by the release in the brain of natural, hallucinogenic, and neuroprotective properties. London researcher Carl Jensen, a member of the Royal College of Psychiatrics, is a leading expert in the hallucinogen ketamine, which is used to treat depression and during surgery as an analgesic to induce loss of consciousness and reduce pain. Jansen proposed that in the 1990s that a 
ketamine-like substance may play a role in the emergence of NDEs among patients with life-threatening injuries or disorders of the brain and spinal cord given the parallels between NDEs and ketamine trips and the potentially protective properties of ketamine-like substances. The disassociative anesthetic ketamine can produce all aspects of the near-death experience, Jansen wrote. That includes a sense of ineffability, timelessness, and what is experienced as real, and that one is actually dead, a perception of separation from the body, vivid hallucinations, rapid movement through a tunnel, and emerging into a light. Although many psychedelic experiences bear some similarities to NDEs, recreational ketamine trips top the list. In a massive 2019 study comparing psychedelic experiences to NDEs, Laurie's group used natural language processing tools to assess the semantic similarities between 15,000 accounts linked to the use of 165 different psychoactive substances and 625 NDE narratives. They found accounts of ketamine trips most closely resembled those of NDEs. Ketamine is also in methyl d aspartate receptor antagonist, and so could counter neurotoxins processes that are set in motion by NMDA receptors when blood flow and oxygen to the brain are cut off. With a short-lived disassociative hallucinogenic state according, occurring as a side effect, at least one naturally occurring substance that could play this role, called an endo psychosin has been identified. In fact, critical conditions like hypoxia, oxygen deficiency, or temporal lobe epilepsy have been shown to trigger NDEs and NDE-like experiences. And many studies in clinical trials have established that ketamine has neuroprotective and neuroregenerative effects in humans, even after stroke, brain injury, and epileptic seizures. There is likewise some experimental evidence of near-death experiences that occur at the time of a trauma might help to ward off post-traumatic stress disorder. All right. Very cool. Let's hop over to The Guardian. What do near-death experiences mean and why do they fascinate us? By Alex Moshekis. When Greg Nome was 24 years old, he slipped into the churn beneath a waterfall and began to drown. His body pummeled against the sandy ri riverbed. When he saw there, what he saw there surprised him. Suddenly, his vision filled with crystal clear scenes from his childhood, events he had mostly forgotten, and then moments from early adulthood. The memories, if that's what they were, were vivid and crisp. Was he reliving them? Not quite. They came at high speed, almost all at once, in a wave, and yet he could process each one individually. In fact, he was able to perceive everything around him, the rush of water, the sandy bed, all of it brilliantly distinct. He could hear and see as never before, he recalled later, and despite being trapped underwater, he felt calm and at ease. He remembered thinking that prior to this moment, his senses must have been dulled somehow, because only now he could fully understand the world. 
perhaps even the true meaning of the universe. Eventually, the imagery faded. Next, there was only darkness, he said, and a feeling of a short pause, like something was about to happen. Noam recounted the story at a support group in Connecticut in 1985, four years after the experience. He had survived, but now he hoped to understand why. During a moment of extreme mortal crisis, his mind had behaved the way that it did. The meeting had been organized by Bruce Grayson, now a professor in psychiatry at University of Virginia. As Noam spoke, Grayson sat in the circle of 30 or so, as if at an AA meeting, listening intently and nodding along. Grayson had been hearing of events like these for years. A month into his psychiatric training in the 1960s, he had been confronted by a patient who claimed to have left her body while unconscious on a hospital bed, who later provided an accurate description of events that had taken place in a different room. This made no sense to him. I was raised in a scientific household. My father was a chemist. Growing up in the physical world, that was all there was. He felt certain someone had slipped the patient the information. He also thought, what does that even mean, to leave your body? Right. Right. Near-death experiences are not a new phenomenon. Socrates had one according to Plato. Pliny the Elder recorded another in the first century. History is filled with examples of mountaineers falling from cliffs and experiencing bliss rather than the terror. But we seem as enthralled now by their meaning as ever, and they continue to be sprinkled liberally across popular culture. Last year, my four-year-old son and I watched Soul, the Disney film, which introduces the near-death experience to a new audience, very young people, and examines consciousness, the afterlife, and the imperceptible stuff that made makes us us. My son is convinced now that when we die, we ride an ethereal, very cool-looking travelator toward a blinding light in the sky. Often in these screen-based times, we are encouraged to celebrate narratives that promote living the right way, which tends to involve appreciating or accepting every moment for what it is. Right. That's all from that article. Go over to CNN, an article by John Blake called Beyond Goodbye. Some people not only share their life, but their moment of death with loved ones. Are these shared death experiences real or a mirage? William Peters was working as a volunteer in a hospice when he had a strange encounter with a dying man that changed his life. The man's name was Ron, and he was a former merchant marine who was afflicted with stomach cancer. Peter says he would spend up to three hours a day at Ron's bedside, talking to and reading adventure stories to him, because few families or friends ever visited. When Peter plopped by Ron's bedside around lunch one day, the frail man was semi-conscious. Peter's read passages from Jack London's Call of the Wild, as the frail man struggled to hang on. What's next, Peter says, was inexplicable. Peter says he felt a force jerk his spirit upward out of his body. He floated above Ron's bedside, looking down at the dying man. 
when he glanced next to him to discover Ron floating alongside him, looking at the same scene below. He looked at me and gave this happy, contented look as if he was telling me, Check this out. We are here, Peter said. Peter says then he felt his spirit drop into his body again. The experience was over in a flash, and Ron died soon afterwards. But Peter's questions about the day lingered. He didn't know what to call this moment, but he eventually learned that it wasn't unique. Peter's had a shared death experience. Most of us have heard of near-death experiences. The stories of people who died and returned to life with tales of floating through a tunnel to distant light have been part of popular culture. Yet there is another category of near-death experiences that are, in some ways, even more puzzling. Stories about shared death experiences have been circulating since the late 19th century. Some of those who study the phenomenon. The twist in shared death stories is that it's not just the people at the edge of death that get a glimpse of the afterlife. Those near them, either physically or emotionally, also experience the sensation of dying. These shared death accounts come from assorted sources. Soldiers watching comrades die in the battlefield, hospice nurses, people holding death vigils at the bedside of their loved ones, all tell similar stories with the same message. People don't die alone. Some somehow find a way to share their passage to the other side. Raymond Moody's name keeps coming up again and again, but he introduced the concept of shared death experiences in his 2009 book, Glimpses of Eternity. He first started collecting stories of people who died and returned to life while he was in medical school. Skeptics have dismissed tales of the afterlife as hallucinations triggered by anesthesia or anoxia, a lack of oxygen to the brain, that some people experience when they're near death. But Moody says you can't explain shared death experiences by citing anoxia or anesthesia. We don't have that option in shared death experiences because the bystanders aren't ill or injured, yet they experience the same kind of things. Skeptics, though, say people reporting shared death experiences are not impartial observers. Their perceptions are distorted by grief. Joe Nickel, a noted investigator in the paranormal, says people who've watched others die sometimes experience their own form of trauma. They don't intend to, but some reinvent the moment of their loss, making it more acceptable. If you're having a death vigil and your loved one dies, wouldn't it be great to have a great story to tell that would make everyone happy and tell them that Uncle John went to heaven and I saw his soul leave and I saw him smile? Says Nicole, who is also an investigative writer for the journal. Skeptical Inquirer, which offers scientific evaluation to extraordinary claims. Nikel says shared death experiences are not proof of an afterlife, but of psychological truism. If you're looking for something hard enough, you'll find it. There's well known to any psychologist or psychiatrist. Proof of heaven popular, except with the church. Popular culture is filled with accounts from people who claim that proofs of heaven. Yet the popularity of these near-death experiences raises a question. Why don't, doesn't the church talk about heaven anymore? He says people who claim to have shared death experience 
tell similar stories. They recount the sensation of their consciousness being pulled upward out of their body, seeing beings of light, co-living a life review with the dying person, and seeing dead relatives of the dead person. Some healthcare workers at the bedside of dying patients report seeing a light exit from the top of the person's body at the moment of death and other surreal effects, Moody says. They say it's like the room changes dimensions. It's like a port opens to some other framework or reality. Penny Satori, who was a nurse for 21 years, says she had a deathbed vision that left her shaken. One night, she was preparing to give a bath to a dying patient who was hooked up to a ventilator and other life-prolonging equipment. She said she touched the man's bed and everything around us stopped. She says her surroundings disappeared and it was almost like I swapped places with him. She says she could suddenly understand everything the man was going through, including feeling his pains. He couldn't talk, but she says she could somehow hear him convey a heart-wrenching message. Leave me alone. Let me die in peace. Just let me die. That shared death experience spurred her to conduct a five-year investigation into such stories and publish them in her book, The Wisdom of Near-Death Experiences. But even before that experience, she said she and other hospital workers had other eerie portents that a patient was about to die. There would be a sudden drop in temperature at the bedside of a dying patient or a light wound surround or my bad a light would surround the body just before death she says a very common for a clock to stop at the moment of death satori says i've seen light bulbs flicker and blow at the moment of death a mother says goodbye one of the oddest shared death experiences comes from a woman who says she felt the death throes of her mother even though they were thousands of miles away Annie Cap was born in the United States, but eventually moved to England, where she worked for a telecommunications company. On the day after Christmas in 2004, she says her mother, Betty, suddenly fell ill at her home in Portland, Oregon. She was hospitalized, and over the next few days, all of her major organs began to shut down. Cap, however, says she didn't know her mother was dying, yet in a strange way, she says she did. Cap learned that her mother was ill, but says she couldn't get a flight during the holiday season, so all she could do was wait. She was in her London office with a client one day when she started to gag, struggling to breathe. She was mystified because she was in good health. She struggled for air for about 25 minutes and with a growing sense of dread regarding her mother. I felt and heard the strange gurgling in my throat. I started coughing and gagging, and I had this deep, growing sadness. I quickly rescheduled my client, and once they had left, I ran as fast as I could to my house and called my mom's hospital room. That's when she learned that her mother was gasping for air, on the verge of death. While Cap was on the phone, she says, her mother died. She's convinced that somehow she shared her mother's death throes, but she kept denying it because she was agnostic at the time, who didn't believe in an afterlife. Now she said she does. Today, Cap is a therapist in London and the author of Beyond Goodbye, an extraordinary true story of a shared death experience. It wasn't a blissful experience, she says of that day after Christmas. I was suffocating.
All right. We are on Magis Center, a blog, Credible Near-Death Stories. Five stories of near-death experiences. Near-death experience story one, finding dentures. In 2001 study by renowned cardiologist Pim Van Lamel, a man who had been in a deep coma, later told a nurse that he recognized her. He told her that he saw her, saw where she had placed his dentures after resuscitation efforts, and then described the carts where she placed them. They were there precisely as he described. Near-death experience story two, a child meets relatives. One man who had an NDE as a child recalled the experience of meeting dead relatives. There were some presences there. There were some ladies. I didn't know them at the time. They were so loving and so wonderful. I just didn't want to come back. I didn't see any pictures of them until I was an adult. And then I said, oh, yeah. They were my great-grandmothers who had died years before I was born. Near-death experience number three, life review. Often people relay their near-death experience as a review of their life. Though life review experiences cannot be deemed scientifically veridical, they're worth noting. They can be, have profound effect on the NDE and sometimes cause them to re-examine their life and morals. Below is a doctor's description of the life review of an NDE patient. When he realized the collision was imminent, the patient said that time seemed to slow down as he hit the brakes and went into an uncontrollable slide. Then he seemed to pop out of his body. While in this state, he had a life review, which consisted of brief pictures, flashes of his life. His car struck the truck, and the truck bed crashed through the window, causing multiple injuries to his head and chest. Medical reports show that he was in a coma and nearly died, yet he had a vivid sensation of leaving his physical body and entering darkness. He had the feeling of moving up through the dark tunnel towards a point of light. Suddenly, the feeling of being filled with love and light appeared to him. Now he had a second life review, one guided by the being of light. He felt bathed in love and compassion as he reviewed the moral choices he had made in his lifetime. He suddenly understood that he was an important part of the universe and that his life had a purpose. Near-death experience story four, traveling through walls. Some indie ears report stories of veridical out-of-body experiences, including traveling through walls to the waiting room where they see their relatives and friends. One patient reported traveling through a wall and seeing her young daughter wearing mismatched plaids, which was highly unusual. Another woman traveled through a wall and overheard her brother-in-law in the hospital waiting room talking to a business associate in a very derogatory manner. She was able to report this back to him later. Near-death experience story five, a blind woman has sight restored. As mentioned above, some blind people report being able to see during their NDE. She suffered a cardiac arrest during her stay in the hospital where I was the chairman of the psychiatric or psychiatry department. She was unconscious as the resuscitation team tried to revive her. According to her later report, she floated out of her body and stood near the window. 
watching the resuscitation. She observed without any pain whatsoever as they thumped on her chest and pumped air into her lungs. During the resuscitation, a pen fell out of the doctor's pocket and rolled near the same window, where her out-of-body spirit was standing and watching. The doctor eventually walked over, picked up the pen, and put it back in his pocket, then rejoined the frantic group to save her. They succeeded. A few days later, she told her doctor that she had observed the resuscitation team at work during her cardiac arrest. No, no, he soothingly reassured her. You were probably hallucinating because of the anoxia, lack of oxygen to the brain. This can happen when the heart stops beating. But I saw your pen roll over to the window, she replied, then described the pen and other details of the resuscitation. The doctor was shocked. His patient had not only been comatose during resuscitation, but she had also been blind for many years. All right, we hop over to Business Insider. Researchers' near-death experiences, past life, afterlife. Jim Tucker and Jennifer Kim Pernberthy spend a lot of time thinking about the afterlife. They're psychiatry professors at the University of Virginia. Tucker studies near-death experiences and young children who report memories of a past life. Pemberthy studies both near-death experiences and after-death communications, or people who say they were visited by deceased loved ones. Their research has convinced them that there's a subconsciousness beyond our physical reality. They said at a South by Southwest panel in Austin, Texas on Tuesday, there's more than an idea that we just live in this body and die and that's it, Pemberthy said. The researchers don't make sweeping claims about heaven or reincarnation. Instead, their work consists mostly of listening to people's stories and determining whether those experiences are credible and looking for scientific patterns. In 2013's book, Return to Life, Tucker described a young boy named Ryan Hammonds who reported that he had been a Hollywood agent in a previous life. Tucker determined that 55 of Hammonds' claims matched the real-life experiences of Marty Martin, a Hollywood agent who died in 1964. Stories like that deserve an explanation, Tucker said. Pemberthy said she's waiting for their field of research to become mainstream, the way medication research is, once dismissed as pseudoscience, has gained credibility over time. Science is an evolution, and it's changing, she said. In my world, I see it changing to include more expansive approaches to things. People with near-death experiences describe floating above their bodies and encountering beings of light. Both Tucker and Pemberthy have identified distinct patterns in the way people encounter death. People often report having visions of deceased loved ones when they're falling asleep or starting to wake up. Tucker said around 70% of the young children he studied who say they have memories of a past life are able to describe how they died. Often those deaths seem to have been happened traumatically. Many of these kids also grieve being away from their previous families, Tucker said, and around 20% of them say they have memories of an intermediate time between life or between death and their next life. 
Many people with near-death experiences also report having same visions as one another. Often when someone has a heart attack or something that briefly causes their brain to shut down, many of them will describe floating above their bodies. From there, people with near-death experiences describe traveling through a dark passage, Tucker said. Some report seeing their deceased loved ones and encountering a beam of light. Many say they were either given a choice to return or instructed to do so. We go over to Oregon Live, where they have an article called I Did Not Didn't Want to Return. Research says near-death experiences, not hallucinations. Answers still elusive. By Douglas Perry. Dying can be good for your mental health, if, that is, you survive it. The experience of death, researchers state in a newly published scientific study, frequently leads to positive long-term psychological transformation and growth. Offered one person whose near-death case was included in the paper, I've been much more mindful of others. It's easier for me to put myself in others' shoes. It's easier for me to act out of love and compassion. By now, we've all heard the eerily similar stories told by people who were clinically dead and then revived, floating around above your body and observing it, feeling releases of all pain and worry, being drawn into that tunnel of light and infused with joy, love, and acceptance. The new study by Parnia, as we've mentioned before, examines the most common and well-documented near-death experiences and recalled experiences of death. It all so provides illustrative quotes of those who died and lived to tell about it. Here are a few quotes describing memories of lifting out of one's body. I knew, obviously, my body still lay in the bed, but I could not go back into it anymore. Is this death I contemplated? I perceived and saw everything around me, like 360 degrees. That body there was just a coat I was wearing. It felt good to be out of it. One such post-death experience was so intense offered one quote that the study that our daily life seems like a dream in comparison. Parnia says the scientific advances increasingly make it possible to put these memories to the test. What has enabled the scientific study of death is that the brain cells do not become irreversibly damaged within minutes of oxygen deprivation when the heart stops. Instead, they die over hours of time, this allowing scientists to objectively study the physiological and mental effects that occur in relation to death. It's hardly surprising that many people who go through a near-death experience see God in the details. I felt a presence, states a quote from the study. I also felt complete trust in this company. The cliché of seeing your life flash before your eyes is very real. As many people quote, My whole life was viewed, analyzed, and judged. I was not as good as I thought I was, admitted another. This analysis and judgment often led people who'd gone through it to pursue personal growth, as well as embrace the idea that they had returned to life for some reason. I felt that there was something at stake, that we have a very important job to do, begins one quote in the study.
Okay, very cool. We go now to WKRG.com, article by George Knapp. After three near-death experiences, this man's mission is to comfort dying veterans. One Southern Nevada man believes both sides are wrong of what happens when we die. Scientists say physical death is the end. Religions say our souls are immortal and we go depends on what we did in life. But he says that they're wrong. Writer and speaker Danian Brinkley says that he's seen the other side at least three times. Brinkley was a star athlete, U.S. Marine, and successful businessman, not very interested in spiritual matters. But that changed in 1975, when a bolt of lightning struck a telephone pole, traveled down the phone line, and slammed into his body, melting the phone he was holding. It went into the side of my head above my ear. It went down my spine. It welded the nails of the heels of my shoes to the floor. It threw me up in the air. I see the ceiling. It slams me back down. A ball of fire comes through the room and blinds me. I'm burning. I'm on fire. I'm paralyzed. Brinkley said he left his body, floating along with the ambulance as it raced to the hospital and watched from above as doctors declared him dead. He said 20 minutes later he awoke in the hospital morgue. During those 28 minutes, Brinkley says his consciousness traveled through a tunnel where he encountered a spiritual being of light and underwent a grueling replay of his entire life, as seen not only from his perspective, but from everyone he'd ever encountered. Something he says was extremely humbling. I saw my entire life past performing a 360 panorama. I had missed nothing. You know how many hairs were in the nose of the doctor who pulled you from your mother? You know everything that there is from the time you open your eyes. You have a complete cognitive awareness, no doubt about it. And that's all happening at the same time, no doubt about it. When you watch the same life from a second person point of view, as if you were your own best friend, so you can see how silly, how funny, how dumb, how stupid it was. But it, one of your best friend, you know, there's no judgment, just looking. And then you literally become every person that you ever encounter. And you feel the direct result of your interaction between you and that person. No one gets away with anyone, anything. And then in a the flash, he says he was back in his severely injured body. It took him two years to be able to walk again. He didn't tell many people what happened, and when he did tell his family, they didn't believe him. But in the same year as the lightning bolt incident, a Georgia physician, Raymond Moody, wrote a book, Life After Life, and coined the term near-death experience. In 1989, during the open-heart surgery, Brinkley died again, and once again he visited what he perceived to be the afterlife. Brinkley wrote the book, Saved by the Light, which became a runaway bestseller and led to TV appearances and even made for TV movie. Skeptics and debunkers came after him, disputing biographical details and arguing that NDEs happen because the brain is dying, not because people are visiting heaven. 
Leslie Keen, a journalist who was writing extensively about near-death experiences, said there is evidence that human consciousness exists independently of the body, and it survives physical death. In many entities, similar to Brinkley's, she writes, people are able to accurately describe what was happening when their brain was dead, when no ability to see or hear anything. There are many cases in which cardiac arrest is happening with a doctor present, they're documenting the fact there's no brain activity, Keene told Mystery Wire in an earlier interview. The case of Penn Reynolds is another extraordinary one, where they can't possibly have consciousness, yet they do have consciousness. They're able to go out, report back things that were happening in the environment, with no brain activity. Brinkley, who later had yet another NDE during brain surgery, said he's happy to take on any doubters, including religious leaders and what happens when we die. If I didn't go to hell in the last four journeys, nobody's going to hell, okay? Brinkley said, so when you learn you don't die, when you learn you're a spiritual being, you're not going to hell. That's enough to inspire you to change. Brinkley put his beliefs into action. For decades, he's been counseling terminal patients. Specifically, he's counseling his fellow veterans, assuring them they have nothing to fear from death. He has spent tens of thousands of hours at the bedside of the dying. He has been with more than 2,000 people as they passed away. His passion led him to create a program called the Twilight Brigade. It works with Veterans Administration to try and ensure that no military veteran should die alone. A defiant Brinkley, hobbled by a lifetime of serious injuries, knows he has helped thousands of people who are facing death, whether science or religion believed him or not. Brinkley added, he does his talks because nobody dies. It never happens. It's not part of the nature of reality. It's just not. Right. Very cool story. And I think we will end it there. Very cool stories. I'm glad I did the research on this. This is some pretty cool stuff. I'm sure I haven't even scratched the surface on some of the uh, more psychic and uh, spirituality avenues of near-death experiences. Um, as my friend described in the other episode of my Not Normal podcast, and for that, I do apologize, but this one was mostly scientific and what people claim to have seen and heard, so I hope you enjoyed. Let's take a break. All right, real quick, uh, we did have a submission from one of our listeners. Um, he sent me kind of a story that kind of goes along with the shared death, near-death experience, so I'll read it for you now. Hi, Andrew. It was Ascension Day Eve when I was in a wake next to a dying man. I'm a volunteer in a hospice house. I was reading a study book when I turned my attention to him to see how he was and wiped the sweat from his head. The moment I turned away from him, I had a strange moment in which it seemed as if I looked into another dimension. In that moment, I saw a white, transparent something, and without even thinking, I knew I saw an angel. No, that was already a strange experience, but I continued. 
After my shift, I drove home and realized I forgot my phone. So I turned back, picked up my phone, and drove home. Turning into my street, I noticed something on the road. An animal. I stopped and picked it up. It was a toad. For me, that was symbolic. The meaning was transformation. All right, really cool story. Thank you for sharing. All right. Thank you for listening to today's episode on near-death experiences. I'm Chappie, your host, and this is Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. Make sure to join us on the Facebook page at Paranormal Stories, parentheses, Spooky Shiz, to be able to submit your story and connect with me. All right. Stay spooky, my friends.